Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name is Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. For our next stop on this adventure, we are joined by Harrison Ward, a.k.a. The Fell Foodie. Harrison is a proud Cumbrian who has turned the mountainous landscape he calls home into his kitchen. After discovering a passion for hiking in 2016 following a drastic life change, it wasn't long before a lifetime love of cooking was merged with this new vice. Harrison speaks extremely openly about his battles with mental health after turning to alcohol during his time at York University, as well as the domino effect which led to the sudden breakdown of a relationship, ultimately proving as the turning point in his life. This cathartic turnaround began the journey he finds himself on today, where Harrison treasures each day and can often be found walking up and cooking on the fells around the Lake District. He uses his experiences to help others who may be going through difficult times whilst cooking some seriously delicious food along the way. A warning that this podcast episode does feature the topics of suicide and suicidal thoughts. We also have some exciting news that this week's episode partner, the National Outdoor Expo, will be releasing tickets to the show next March on Wednesday, the 21st of September. Now, the expo is one of the biggest community meetups of the year, bringing together inspirational speakers, cutting edge technologies and the best in gear all under one roof. You can check out the full list of speakers, brands and activities available at the show so far on the website by heading to nationaloutdoorexpo.com. Whilst you're on the website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter so you can be alerted as soon as the tickets to the expo are released. And with that, let's get straight into this week's episode. Harrison, welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Dom. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I'm excited to to have a chat and for our listeners to hear all about you, your story, and there'll be a lot to learn from this podcast. I've spoken to you and met you before. Uh, with the pleasure of coming up to the Peak District. Uh, sorry, the the uh, uh, where was it? It was the it was the yeah, Peak, Peak District. District yeah. yeah. Guess, double guess myself there for a second um and to hear you talk about your story and also to have some fine food cooked on the outdoors and we'll go into all of that but a simple question to begin with what do you love about being outside and active i think for me i'm just being out there it just feels like quite um quite a sense of belonging just somewhere you feel quite free and also very natural i think it feels like somewhere that we're designed to be i think somewhere that perhaps we've got a bit complacent in in certain areas or perhaps don't have access to um even for myself being sort of brought up in this area of cumbria i mean something i took for granted for quite a while but these days being out there i think does just feel like quite a natural experience and uh and always a fulfilling one and a question you've probably been asked a load of times and a lot of people will know but some might not what does fell foodie which is your pseudonym or also known as what does that mean yeah, so as you're right, yeah, a pseudonym or a bit of a moniker, I guess. It's um, it's basically a name I came up with um, for an online profile initially, something that was quite anonymous, um, just me behind pictures of food and pictures of views I was experiencing. But the two, I guess, for those that don't know, in this area I'm from, Cumbria, the Lake District, we call the hills fells. So it derives from a Scandinavian term. So for me, it was a bit of a, a link to obviously where I'm from in terms of being quite proud of the area I'm from, being Cumbrian. And foodie just being really a less pretentious term for gastronome. So mixing the two <laughs> made quite a nice alliteration and made quite a nice um, pseudonym for it to go online with. And how would you describe to someone that's not heard of you before what you actually do? 
So these days, I guess I've been known as an outdoor cook, uh, mental health advocate, uh, and hiker, sort of based, based here in sort of Lake District, England, but traveling sort of uh, further afield as well. And typically I can be found sort of up in the mountains, cooking sort of restaurant-style meals, if you will, um, on sort of minimal equipment in remote locations. So it's, it's a bit of a unusual area, I suppose, to, to do the thing I do. But for me, it's about that, that challenge aspect and enjoying sort of food in a different way uh, whilst taking in some of these fantastic views. Uh, but also, I'm sure we'll get into it. I've had a bit of a, a different story to this point in terms of how I've discovered the outdoors and how I've got myself to this point, which I suppose leads us in, into well, where I've become known for speaking about sort of my personal struggles as well and um, to various festivals, podcasts like this and, uh, and corporate events. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I mean, Harrison Ward's my, my, my real name, but <laughs> fell through the these days I'm quite used to answering to. Yeah, well, absolutely. We'll go into talking about um, those parts of your life and what led to you to the journey that you're on now. Um, it, it, it's interesting when you were, when you were younger, uh, I, my mother is from a similar area of where you grew up and I went up to visit at the beginning of the year. And she said, Oh, go to this place in Grasmere called, um, it was, it's just a little tiny little gingerbread shop. And it's actually somewhere when I said I came to visit you and, and you cooked for us and gave us a speech, I came back down and she said, oh, he's from, and he used to work in this place. And it was a funny little life overlap between the two of us. But um, talk to us about that, that little shop in Grasmere that just sells gingerbread. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Grasmere gingerbread, yeah, it's been there since the, sort of the 1800s. I mean, even before it was, I think, William Wordsworth School in the, in the 1600s even, I think. So the building's been there for a very long time, producing this quite unique uh, cross between biscuit and cake uh, product that's been there all these years. And I found myself working for this company uh, when I first moved to the Lake District. I was working in a cafe in Grasmere and met the owners of, of the gingerbread shop who came in for lunch. And basically at the time, they were looking for someone um, to, to fill a technical role there. And I ended up working there for about five five to six years um, as sort of the e-commerce manager there. So dealing with all these shipping and logistics for this little company. It looks like a little tiny granny style bakery in this little village and all of a sudden it's distributing the product worldwide it's the notoriety travels far and far and amazing little product and business really um but something that allowed me i guess to create um a bit more of a a a livelihood and lifestyle in this area um having that sort of job job to hand at first so some i'm no longer working now i've gone freelance with my fellow foodie stuff as of the start of the year um but something i keep quite high regard to and obviously good rapport with the uh, the staff and owners too but yeah fantastic place to be involved in and somewhere that you'll you'll know to have a pilgrimage to if you come to the late district <laughs> definitely an amazing gingerbread as well absolutely amazing <laughs> <laughs> i'll get you sent some dom after this i'm sure we can still sort that out i'll hold you to that um uh, but but growing up what was your relationship with physical activity like growing up around the hills because i know my mum says growing up the hills just surround you in this idea of beauty and being able to see um, hills and lakes and walks. And she looks at stuff now and goes, yeah, that's just normal. And the outdoors is just right at your doorstep. Is that the same relationship with the outdoors with you? Were you always outdoors or is it a different relationship? I think it's one. I mean, I grew up just a bit further north in the Lake District, just outside Carlisle. And I mean, I was always used to quite a, quite a rural upbringing, really, and quite Obviously, at the time, you don't really maybe appreciate um, what you have on your doorstep and also the privilege of being born in these areas, maybe. Um, but at first, it was something that, I mean, I did enjoy quite a lot of maybe team sports outdoors and 
knocking by the woods and maybe heading down to sort of the local the local becks and streams and having a play there and things. But when it came to sort of the hills and hiking, I think it was very much something that I looked on very differently. I just saw them very much just as hills, didn't really see the appeal. Um, I suppose could appreciate the beauty sometimes, but really not to the same extent. I think I was quite um, complacent and snow blind in where I was from. I remember my dad used to often say, when he used to come and pick us up, he'd, he'd drive down the M6 past Shap, and sometimes he'd be looking out the window and be going, look at those hills, beautiful. And I'd be just going, just hills, Dad. You know, I'm, not, I'm not bothered. <laughs> and I think being so close as well to Keswick, I mean, it's funny looking back, but I think maybe a few geography field trips in school we had to the lakes, and otherwise it was probably coffee and cake on a weekend. That was about as close as we came at the time to maybe actually really taking them um, for what they are. But yes, those these days have, uh, have, have changed. And thankfully I found sort of the, uh, the appreciation that many do share for these uh, wonderful mountains. And then how did Harrison Ward change when you went from being just a, a, a young man growing up just outside of Carlisle to then going to York University? Yeah, so I guess during this point, obviously heading through um, sort of, I guess, a puberty phase, there quite a big moment of change as we all go through. It was a time where really I found myself getting quite hit with, with, with different emotions and dealing with a lot of things maybe you hadn't considered before. I mean, obviously you're quite happy-go-lucky growing up, so not really worried about many things. But all of a sudden, a lot of activities and stuff I enjoyed seemed to really not have the same hit for me. I felt quite demotivated. I started getting a lot of sort of insecurity in myself, I guess, both sort of um, body image and how I was perceived. Um, and also, again, sometimes just completely demotivated to go and do tasks that I enjoyed before. And it was something that, again, I didn't really understand what was going on at the time. I didn't feel as if there was uh, much, perhaps, um, well, I'm sure the knowledge was there, but in terms of maybe the resources of, of understanding what was going on at the time, wasn't really aware. But something as well that I felt like I didn't want to put onto other people, so I didn't want to put that, that sense of burden on sort of people by sharing what I was going through. So at the time I was, I was quite an extroverted character, I guess. You know, I talked to anyone that was a bit, was a bit like I am now still. And it was kind of something that I just hid, hid behind almost a mask, if you will, and put that, that brave face on going out the door and not really sharing the fact that really behind the scenes, I was not really, not really too present in myself. I wasn't too happy. Um, what was going through and each day felt, felt like quite a struggle. Um, this was something that obviously I later came to know um, was the start of, of a journey with, with sort of clinical depression, really. But I did, at the time, I didn't understand what was going on. But things really began to escalate, I guess, through sort of later teenage years, where this was really now at a point of battling moments of not wanting to be here at all, not wanting to exist, you know, contemplation of suicide, uh, various moments there, just not really feeling like I could go on too much. And during this time, and I was still obviously frequenting my studies and bits, and I still um, found myself working in hospitality trade, so a bit of a part-time job to go alongside my studies. Now, this escalated through working from sort of back of house, maybe washing up the pots to waiting on to, to 18, where I finally started working uh, behind a bar. Uh, at this point, I guess, was my real sort of discovery of, of the world of alcohol. That again, is quite a quite a rite of passage in this country, quite part of the culture ingrained to It's something that, obviously, you celebrate those moments and perhaps even leading up to 18, you've maybe been a lot more um, exposed to alcohol than perhaps I was at the time. But it was something that quite quickly I, I enjoyed the, the social aspects of meeting different people in that environment, talking to people from backgrounds I maybe wouldn't have met or come across before in my sort of quite young life at the time. But also that, that sensation of sort of enjoying a drink after work or going out with people and feeling quite free in my own head, almost being able to delete those thoughts uh, through what was sort of sedation, I guess, at the time. 
with alcohol. So I suppose at first, you know, I couldn't really handle much of a drink. I was very green, that sort of respect. And I guess it was kind of a couple of pints and that was it. You're really feeling it heading home. But that sensation of really relieving myself from that, that, that darkness and those dark thoughts became quite, I suppose, a feeling that, that I longed for and sort of wanted to get more and more. So this really began me sort of heading, working more shifts at the pub, doing a lot more nights there, um, which really was all under the guise of being social, but really in reality it was me was me beginning to sort of drink um, heavier and heavier. Uh, and by the time I hit sort of 19, I was, I was a year late in going in my studies. I, I, I received an offer from university and moved away to York. And at this point now, I was really sort of starting to drink most, most days of the week. I was, I was quite known as going out, um, probably more often than a lot of my peers and friends. And moving away to a new city, once again, for that university environment, it'd be a big sort of freshers week. It's all boost-fueled. It's getting to know people. Yeah. Again, that Dutch courage as people have when they're socialising. This, again, was quite normalised, uh, as, it, as it is in this country, really. But for me, there was an underlying reason in terms of why I was actually drinking to the extent of what I was, and perhaps more so than even those in that similar environment. And, and it really began to sort of take take its toll, I guess, in New York for me. Moving away to another city where I suppose nobody knew who you were, you were quite sort of under that closet of darkness quite a lot. I mean, again, for a sort of a rural Cumbrian upbringing as well, there was all of a sudden, a lot more access to things. There was, you know, I would walk down the street to bars and clubs open until four in the morning, not the pubs that would be shooting at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night in, uh, <laughs> in Brampton, where I'm from. And, and quite quickly, I, mean, I took up smoking at the time. I became a sort of full-time smoker. And daily drinking sort of went into sort of quite heavy heavy levels where I was consuming sort of maybe a good sort of 10, 10 pints sort of uh, most most days. And so I had to put a lot of weight on at this point too. Um I found myself working again in hospitality trade in York quite quickly, finding myself in that familiar environment of the pub. And quite quickly, my studies began to fall by the wayside where where this alcohol sort of lifestyle had really began to take further hold. And um, I eventually dropped out of university and went full-time in the pub industry. And, and before long, probably in the space of maybe a year, um, probably less, a year and a half maybe, of moving to York, I was now sort of drinking in excess of 20 pints a day, wow. smoking full-time, uh, and I ballooned in weight to about 22 stone. So, again, all under this really guise of just trying to be happy, in a way, just trying to just silence that, that mind that was really no fault of mine. But, yeah, it was a slippery slope, and, and things really began to, to escalate. Um, you speak very eloquently and almost understanding of it now. But at the time... Were you aware of what was happening? Were other people aware of, around you aware of what was happening? So uh, there was probably signs in terms of um, lifestyle change for Stuart. Obviously, it was quite clear physically that there'd been change. Obviously, I, I put a lot of weight on. I probably wasn't looking too too healthy. I, I was often under the influence. I mean, um, I, I could handle my drink quite well at this point. Obviously, I was drinking stupid figures, but... Yeah, you were known, so you know you you knew you had a drink, I suppose, quite early on. I mean, at this level, at this point, I was probably drinking at the start of the day. I was having a coffee cup behind the bar when I was working. I lived in the pub at one point, so it was literally just really kidding us, kidding us, sweet shot, really. Um, my sole focus, and then heading out to the early hours every day. Um, it's a difficult one looking back. I guess I did. I never shared the, the, what I was going through in terms of the thoughts I was I was having. Again, not wanting to be that burden. Again, not reaching out. Um, it's one of the reasons why I talk so much so openly now. I think that that sort of importance of reaching out and talking, whether it's to friends or family or, or someone, a medical professional, there are people out there available and not suffering alone 
in silence. But for me at the time, it was exactly what I did and tried to handle this in my own way. Um, I have looked back, I suppose, further down the line, maybe not at this exact point, but further down before maybe the, the, the real sort of change. There was moments of intervention at times, maybe moments of ultimatums. Um, there was more the alcohol side, I think, than the actual mental health side, more more the blame of the substance abuse that was going on rather than the actual root cause of this thing, which I think is, is quite common with a lot of, um, I suppose, vices that people use to, to deal with, with emotional pain. So at the time, yeah, it was probably there was maybe inklings, but I don't think people were truly understood. I guess I was good at wearing that mask as well. I mean, I was good at sort of putting on that face, maybe switching people onto my, my path and, and not really revealing too much and really that was quite um quite an armor you had on each day that you didn't want to reveal that so perhaps yeah it went under the radar for for quite a while just touching on that quantity that you were drinking and purely just to get an understand for the listener of at what point you were at and how low you were feeling at that time 20 pints a day is is no mean feat and some people will get to the point where they black out before that and 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 will stop drinking just because they're not able to, but it just shows how high your tolerance was. I mean, the practicality of actually having to drink, you must have been having to wake up and start drinking from the point you wake up until the point that you went to went to sleep that evening. Yeah, it was it was it was it, at the time, I mean it was it, it feels bizarre looking back now, I guess, to even even contemplate the amounts, but I didn't even see anything as an issue at the time. I just saw myself as a heavy drinker, someone that was maybe good at drinking. You know, I thought that was it, hollow legs type thing. And again, quite typically a masculine culture too. It's seen as, you know, a, a strong trait to be a good drinker sort of thing. And that level, although far exceeding, I guess, peers and friends or what they would drink, they weren't even big drinkers at all. But I'd, I'd, I'd quite a solitary drinker. I didn't like to drink at home. I like to get myself out into a different environment, not being stuck at home with my own thoughts. So I'd go out all the time and, and meet different people, I guess, and travel around quite quite solo. And I guess those that I was bumping into along the way, they wouldn't have seen what had gone on the hours before. So it always appeared like I'd had a few drinks before I turned up, but in reality, I'd probably met four or five groups each day heading out. And being in that environment too, again, my, my the old coffee cup was the best trick in terms of being around the bar, just like you're drinking coffee all day. But also in terms of, I guess, I mean, the liquid of it as well. I mean, that was probably a big reason for the for the, the calorific side. I guess I gained, and I mean, a huge amount of liquid to consume at that point too. And I think for me, it was all about that. It was it was almost like a slow, controlled demise each day. It was it was. I like to sort of hit that point where I could feel free, but not lose control straight away. Where I suppose people that maybe looked more sort of drugs or maybe spirit drinkers and things, it was quite a nought to sixty approach of just shutting off instantly. But for me, I like that sort of. Well, the illusion of control, I guess, yeah. if you will, but almost that that slow and steady and more, again, hi- hiding, hiding. It's always about sort of not revealing too much. And obviously, if I was going north to sixty and being shut off each day or, or drugs and various bits, then I was still holding a job at this point. I mean, I said I held a job for the whole time. I was very much highly functioning, and I suppose to other people, it was kind of just yeah, it was just you just like someone that likes to go down the pub and very. Yeah, very strange one looking back. But I mean, yeah, the consumptions obviously were, were, were ridiculous by the end. And that wasn't so from the from day one. I mean, I mentioned it was probably two pints and going home at first. But yeah. as time built up each day, trying to reach that moment of euphoria, that, that, that bracket gets pushed higher and higher while you chase it, chase that feeling. And it got further and further away. But at this point, really, you know, so I was drinking every day. I probably didn't have a day off um, for the best part of five, six years at this point. It was really completely 
um, yeah, sole focus of, of my existence each day. And it's interesting because we, in the modern life, we, we realize that people, positive and negative mental health is, is a, is a massive part of modern life and people struggle with their mental well-being and often have outputs, whether that be physical exercise or writing a journal or speaking to a therapist or friends, your output at that time was alcohol to try and use it, I guess, as an escapism. Was it, was that, I guess it's difficult looking back, but was that a conscious decision or was it, it's not like you friends were trying to direct you and signpost you towards going to talk to someone or anything like that. Was it just like, Oh, I'm feeling bad. I'm turning to alcohol rather than I don't want to go and address the situation. Well, at the time, I think it's again, as, as I, as I sort of touched upon briefly, it's not something that you're completely fully aware of in that moment. I mean, I said, I knew myself as a heavy drinker. I didn't see it as a problem, although quite clearly the amounts, if they were known to others, which they weren't, weren't really would be, you know, alarm bells ringing straight away. But, it was something, I guess, at the time that ultimately, the way I see it now is you just want to be happy for these things. You just want that almost that dopamine hit in a way, and people find it in different ways. So, again, I mentioned before that sort of root cause. I mean, this is completely my lived experience, and this yeah. isn't medical. I mean, I'm not a professional, but I see it almost as the issue, obviously, was that was the depression. I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to clear my own head. And finding something to alleviate that, it's just a dopamine hit. So, I mean, for me, I found it through alcohol, probably found it through food in a way as well. I mean, I, I like my food there, obviously. We'll come on to that, Jim. It's been a passion throughout. Absolutely, but yeah. at the time, I suppose it was in a different way, more the comfort eating. But again, you get people who fall into drugs, but then you get other angles where it might be exercise or adrenaline seeking or, or sex and all sorts of things that people find that are really just a brief moment of, of endorphin hit that becomes quite an addictive sensation because it alleviates those thoughts of, of insecurities and demotivation and darkness. So, but for me at the time, I guess that was the particular drug of choice was alcohol. It was one that was a lot more accepted. It didn't feel as if I was going to be um, alienated from society in a way, I guess. And I could sort of hide under this, this radar in what was quite an accepted lifestyle and working in that environment and just be seen as someone that, oh yeah, he works in the pub. He's doing a bit of market research. You know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, that sort of level. It's just, yeah. it's almost accepted. And the people you're hanging around with at the time too, I mean, I maybe should have known at one point when, some of our best friends were, were bartenders and takeaway owners. And really, I mean, they're, they're signs too. But, yeah, just a, a little um, sign. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose the only angle at the time, I guess, that I, w- I was under the, the, the sense of knowing was the fact that I was quite aware that, that I was using this medicinally in a way. I mean, that was, that was something in my head that I felt that it was a medicine for me. It cleared the mind and it was, it was almost an accepted medicine because of how accessible it was and wasn't going to be on a box or in a form anywhere of saying that this is the reason why it, it could be hidden. So I was aware of that type of thing really, but not to maybe the extent of where it had gone to due to tolerance. But quite quickly, obviously it was going to become clear that this medicine was going to become a poison. Yeah. So you, we've got a good understanding of, of that position that you were in, in that period of your life. And of course that was the unwanted start of a journey that you're on today and you're not in that position anymore. So moving towards the transition to, to starting this almost new element of your life, where, where you are now, what was the cathartic moment or what was the thing that happened that made you think this needs to turn around? There's, there's two big moments, I guess, in this sort of time frame that, that, that really began this sort of turnaround. I and mean, the first one perhaps was the, was the first almost chink in the armour, the first almost 
breaking breaking down really of, of what, what I'd gone through was it was around my sort of 21st birthday in York when I had a lot of friends come to visit uh, in the city. We all went out and, of course, celebrated, as, as you would do, various crawling around various bars and pubs. And Again, at the time, I was very solitary. And um, as the time had gone on and more and more friends went home, it, it began to dawn on me how alone I actually felt in this city. Although I worked and had other friends and acquaintances, they were kind of maybe more situational-based, I suppose, because of where I was in. And one particular night, I mean, I was quite elusive at this point too. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any bit. I was not being contacted. Um, I just sort of went out of business and would turn up when I turned up for various events. And on the last day, I, I was walking home to, to my place of residence, which was which was quite close to the, the, the train tracks in New York. And it was the early hours of the morning. Um, I was completely inebriated. And I don't recall the actual phone call too much, but I made a call home to, to my mum on a payphone um, in the early hours and, just really had one one intention, uh, and all it was was to say goodbye. I, I, I felt like I hit a point where I couldn't, I couldn't go on any further. I mean, this this sort of vice I was utilising to try and keep me here, keep me present, wasn't giving me that escapism anymore. And it was a moment I just didn't feel like I could continue, and it felt like that was my final solution, really. And it was something that I guess at the time could have been a big catalyst moment, could have been a big moment of change, and it did bring me bring me home at the time. I, I came back to sort of Cumbria. I did seek some medical help for the first time at that point. Obviously, my mum was aware and a close friend who was there at the time was aware of what had gone on. But I wasn't willing to make the change at that point. So really, literally, within the space of a week, a week and a half, I booked a train ticket back to York. I went back and continued in exactly the same way as I had done for a further four years. Um, I suppose at this point, it was very clear that this was now a medicinal tool for me. Mm. That this book wasn't openly known to to those around. And then I suppose the next moment really of the change that was the, was the ultimate was the huge catalyst for this moment of change was, was finding, I suppose, a partner in York, something I guess I'd longed for at the time, someone to sort of share things with and experience new things. And but I was already in a relationship at the time with alcohol and, and the two of course didn't, didn't connect, connect well. It was quite hidden still that lifestyle. I wasn't, I worked very different hours to her. So it was very much something I could hide behind the scenes, but it was always known that obviously I was drinking most days, but again, the extent wasn't. And ultimately, as time went on, more and more arguments began to form because of this um, abuse of substance, and this would create more more heavier arguments and really would ultimately always involve me heading out and just drowning my sorrows again or just drinking on it, just escaping the situation, ignoring it, running away and drinking again. And on one particular one of these occasions that I went out, um, I, I acted unfaithfully to, to this partner and it was discovered, uh, the reasons behind this. And, and I, I, by no means do I blame alcohol for this, but it was certainly a catalyst for why I got there. But I had to obviously hold myself accountable for, for my own actions at this point. And it was rightly so the end of the relationship. Um, and this moment was, was the 6th of June, 2016, uh, and really became the first moment for me that I felt that this... This advice I was utilising to try and help myself had now become a problem to others. I felt quite compromised as a person. I felt like I was no longer the person that I felt I was. I felt like it changed me. And I suppose it meant I'd be lying if it wasn't initially to try and win this partner back, but I vowed to remove alcohol from my life at that moment as, I guess, I can, an I can change moment, if you will. So the 6th of June 2016, I smoked my last cigarette that day. I'd thrown those in the bin, 
And I went to work the following day, and a, a colleague had come out to me, and they basically um, said, there's something not quite right with you today. And I just completely broke down in front of me. I was just shattered. My, my foundations had crumbled, really, in my life. I, my, my, my armor had become sort of weak, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd cracked. And he told me to go sit outside and sort of try and gain, get a bit of myself out there. And I didn't come back in for, for six, seven hours, just sat out there. And another colleague had come on to take the shift over in the afternoon at that point and came straight out of a pint glass and said, yeah, get this down here. And I said, I don't drink anymore, John. And he just looked at me and said, you what? So I don't drink anymore. And it was someone that had obviously seen me like pretty much every day for the last sort of four years, the end of the bar, borderline sort of human vacuum cleaner, drinking whatever was available. And literally that overnight, I don't drink anymore, John. And it was a period of obviously a lot of change, a lot of that foundations crumbling, completely feeling broken as a person mentally, sort of the heartbreak side, and then the withdrawal that was beginning. And I felt quite quickly that I couldn't remain in this environment and go through this change. So without saying goodbye to anyone, obviously I'd lost my partner at this point. I left my job, I quit my flats, and I returned to Cumbria and came completely clean for the first time to, to everybody on my, my public Facebook at the time, um, sort of friends and family, of, of why I'd left York and the reasons why behind this. So it was a moment where I felt completely vulnerable, but also exposed uh, uh, and accountable because I'd, I'd heard someone that I cared about at the time. And, but I knew I couldn't make this change if I stayed in that environment. It was too familiar with for me. Um, so coming back home again to, to get those next steps and to move away were really the, the moments of, uh, of major change. Moving towards the change of advice that you now have, the, the reason, you know, that sort of addiction to the outdoors that you now have, how did that come about? Well, what was the, the moment or was there someone that started all of this journey for you? Or was it something that you just wanted to head out and do on your own? So those first few weeks, I guess, from coming back, back to Cumbria, um, quite quickly I'd thrown myself into, into fitness. I felt that, again, alcohol played such a huge part of my life. I mean, it was literally more than a wake-up to the morning of, of blacking out at night. And it's a long period of thing to, to replace in, in your day-to-day when they remove that all of a sudden. So initially I tried to replace this with alcohol. Again, I was quite overweight at the time. I was really lethargic. Again, I packed in the smoke in the alcohol and threw myself into, into basically gym work um, and cycling at first. So heading around to some local routes I used to do as a kid, doing those again. But again, that moment of sharing what I'd gone through online. I had a lot of friends who came out sort of um, the woodwork and various bits and and offered huge support. And so that really, I'll, ne- I'll never really forget. I mean, it was it was so, so empowering and humbling really to receive the support I got. And, and really, I was really lucky to have these people still. There was a lot of people that really I was lucky to have in my life still at this moment. I'd not behaved very well over the years. But a few began to turn up on my doorstep and literally offer me sort of um, company on these different activities that didn't involve alcohol. Um, at the time, you know, you mentioned you touched on before about other people, but this was a time I was going through as well where I did start things like journaling at the time as well and writing this thing out. I, I did seek medical help. I went to sort of um, various group therapy sessions. I see to all these points. I was completely open to this change at the point too, but it was also making these decisions really at base level for myself. Um, and obviously the levels of consumption I just stopped from as well. I mean, that, that is something that's, that's ill-advised at that point. I mean, for me, it felt as if there was no alternative, but I think by the time I'd sort of gone to the doctors and various bits there, they, they were saying that that was obviously quite, quite a, um, not unhealthy, but a, a dangerous thing to do to yeah. cut, go completely cold turkey from those levels of consumption. So, 
if there is anyone listening to that sort of thing, then please do seek that that help and support um, otherwise. But these sort of moments into the outdoors was something that quite quickly gave me that that hit, that endorphin hit that I was getting from absent um, substances in the past. And one particular friend turned up on the doorstep and said that we we're going to go on a hike. And at the time, I mean, I knew nothing what to expect. Again, just down the road from the Lake District, but never really embraced these these before. And I literally donned my hat to hand. I mean, I had I had basically no money at the time. I'd had to spend all my last money on my rent, and I was racked to all these credit card debts. And I pulled on sort of an old pair of old pair of swim shorts I had, I think, and a jumper I used to wear had in the pub on a Friday, and some old scabby trainers that I think had about as much grip as a pair of bowling shoes. And <laughs> he just took one look at me and said, "You can't go hiking like that. No chance." <laughs> but we got in the car and on the way to the Lake District he, he pulled over at an outdoor store and he grabbed his pair of boots off the shelf and got them on the counter and he bought me these boots and it was, it was a huge show of support at the time really and one that again another one I'll never forget of people rallying around and that support network I had that was was very integral to this change and driving further on we pulled up at the base of a of a mountain in the Lake District and uh, the mountain was Blencafra. So for those that know, one of the higher mountains in the lakes and, and quite a baptism of fire for someone that two weeks ago was sat on the bar stool, probably popping out every half an hour for a fire <laughs> and a comatose. But it was um, it was very much something that I don't have too vivid, fond memories of, but slowly but surely, one foot in front of the other, staring at my feet, really, for the majority of it and, and completely blowing up my arse. It was uh, <laughs> headed up this mountaintop. And um, again... Reaching that sort of summit point, I mean, there wasn't much time to gather breath from what I recall, but my friend just looked at me and said, right, we're doing Helvellyn next week. And, and this was sort of it, this this journey where I was so, I guess, lost in myself as well, and so almost feeling as if you didn't, you didn't know where you were almost in life at the time. Everything just fell apart, broken, and the days were merging to one. And I was trying to push through exercise at the time, and this began a new little cycle. But a week later, there it was, Helvellyn the base of this sort of stone staircase route from, from the filmier side. And it was a really glorious, hot, blue sky day. And the same story, wandering up, just staring at the feet, plodding up, you know, struggling away. And it, it began to feel quite like a, a physical sort of manifestation of what I've been going through in a way, in terms of the fact that it was a moment I had to push through that pain, not knowing what I was going to achieve, what I was going to get to, the unknown. And really, the, the struggle I've been going through all this time of trying to reach um, a moment, I guess, of clarity and, and comfortableness with myself. But again, reaching that sort of summit point, reaching the trig, it was there, looking over sort of strides and edge and red time below in these fantastic views, the Pennines in the distance too. It just really sung to me. And it, it, it definitely felt like the beginning of a new addiction at this point. And something that gave me that endorphin high without any of those lows. And this quite quickly began this new cycle. So a week later with Scarfell Pike, I think in the space of a month, I was down doing Snowden and then off to do sort of Ben Nevis. And at this point too, I kept up the gym work and the running and replacing those bits. And sort of the, the boots began getting changed for trail trainers. And the next minute we run up the side of these hills. And it was a complete moment of, of, of change overnight, really. I mean, it was, it was something that must have been so bizarre to those on the outside of seeing this. <laughs> Complete change. This, this complete change. Yeah, I mean, even for myself, it's, it's vivid memories. But at the time, you still, you still know sort of, I guess, realization of, of of the time frame of what this went through. And and less than a year later, I think it was May May 2017, and 6th of June 2016 being that turnaround date. A couple of months prior, I was, I was somehow convinced to sign up for a marathon, and there we are in May, still at the start of a marathon line, and uh, and running this marathon around Windermere, and it was just a complete. 
bizarre sort of out of body yeah. moment sort of thing. Just feeling like the 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 huge sort of feeling of redemption had gone on in this short space of time. At this point, I'd lost about seven stone. I was just coming up a year sober. Hadn't touched a drop at that time. Left the smoking behind and was very much now living a completely new lifestyle with the outdoors being a huge, major catalyst and a part of that. I mean, highlighting a couple of points, I think it's it's amazing that you said that you came back home and that you had a lot of different... You, people were reaching out to help you and you had a lot of support and you were going to speak to people to, to talk through these issues and you, you were fully accepting that. And also you, an important thing is that you said you were doing it for you. Obviously you stopped drinking and smoking to begin with to, 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 in an attempt to try and get your partner back. But those things you were actually doing for you, the running, the cycling, the being outdoors. And like I said, I bet you were on the, the start line of the marathon going, what, what is going on here? Like, why am I here? But, I'm just going to carry on and do it anyway. But like running, cycling, gym, you were, you were doing, but it was, it was being outdoors and going up these hills and exploring and cooking outdoors. I think cooking outdoors is the one that people that might be a little bit unique and niche for other people that have this sort of journey in life. What was it specifically about taking to the fells and cooking that that really gripped you? Yes, yeah, so I mentioned briefly, I suppose, that food had always been a passion for me from a young age. I loved sort of basically how it brought people together around the table. It seemed a real moment of celebration, happiness when, when people gathered. And I basically learned to cook uh, with my grandmother growing up. So she was obviously oldest of quite a few cousins, of seven cousins. And again, being put to work in a way, if you will, sort of little things. But began to love how different things came together and almost began researching that, if you will, sort of through cooking shows and cookbooks as, from a young age of how things would work and come together. Now, it was quite difficult to source a lot of these ingredients in, in Cumbria at the time. <laughs> Not the same sort of maybe access to things as, as in some other parts, but um, it was that intrigue, I suppose, of putting things together uh, at that time. And, and again, completely self-taught, even though I worked in hospitality trade from quite a young age and through, I was never trained at this point. I never really worked directly in the kitchens. It was just always watching, learning, listening, asking questions, of people that maybe had a better skill set. And I suppose through the darker days, of course, it, it wouldn't play as much of a part. But on that moment of change, again, it was another big moment for me that on removing those negative vices and, and pushing myself into the exercise and the outdoor angles, going back to sort of cooking fresh fresh produce and cooking and that mindful practice I found of cooking as well was another big angle. And again, for me, it was about how you're fueling yourself in a way too. It was basically not expecting to put bad fuel into a car for it to go 100 miles so I was trying to make this big change, and I wasn't going to be able to do that with, I suppose, the more unhealthy options that I'd seek out or source out, rather, excuse my grammar, in the uh, in the past mm-hmm. there. Um, but when I started heading into the hills and the hikes, I suppose at first I was preparing quite extravagant packed lunches with me, catering those up, maybe things I'd left over the night before, or maybe like risottos and stews or nice sort of cold salads I was making to enjoy on the mountain summit. And this often got quite a few comments, I guess, from people that were on there with the clean film sandwiches that all squashed at the bottom of the bag or various meal deals. And and one particular person said that, why didn't he get a stove and actually cook out there from scratch? And initially it was a bit of a, you know, a, a challenge and uh, one that I didn't shirk and, and did exactly that. Bought a stove, took into the hills and sort of started cooking these things from scratch uh, in these wonderful environments. And, and at first it was, again, I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have any sort of the, the finances, really. So I was just taking what I had in the kitchen. So it was all that ceramics I was taking and proper utensils out there, very health, um, heavy stuff that, again, I'm probably still not known for my 
my lightweight pack. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it was very much at the time where even heavier. But I suppose that too was it was a challenge and all part of this this fitness journey that I was going on. Um, but again, it was at this time I began sharing a lot of things online under that sort of moniker that fell foodie, which was again completely anonymous at the time. Just just pictures of the food I was preparing at home at first, and the views I was experiencing on the hills. And when the two began to combine and cooking out there from scratch, that's when things really began to to snowball and take off. And so there was that sense of intrigue, and, and as he's mentioned, maybe a bit of a different activity too. Um, and that's really grown from there. It's something that I just love being out there. I think I find it somewhere that you can sort of slow down, enjoy nature in a different way. Um, quite often we're rushing to these sort of summit points or heading up and trying to get a Strava time or a selfie at the top and various bits. And for me, heading up there and actually just being still and setting up the kitchen and preparing things from scratch as much as possible is a different adventure in itself. So I suppose I mean, quite recently, I think I had a little article go live and I can see that quite a few comments of people go, well, it's just completely impractical. I mean, why are you going to do that? Head up the hill. But for maybe look at it in a different way and actually see that as a different activity in itself. Mm. And that's the angle I enjoy. So whether it's heading down, you know, some people down by the lakeside or through the forest and just enjoying nature in a different way. With again, people who love food, I think will identify a lot more than those that just use it as fuel. But it's a different, different way to, to enjoy, a different way to connect those sights and sounds and smells, and, and and very primal too. I mean, I find it that's where we originally came to cook, sort of in the outdoors and things. When we first sort of discovered fire and how it's advanced through into more your clay ovens, underground ovens, to more the commercial kitchens you see today. So taking it back into the outdoors now with these refined recipes and the equipment we have available it's just a bit of a different homage to that sort of ancestral past yeah adventuring and having a boiling a boil in a bag on a stove or having like you said sandwiches and cling film at the bottom of the bottom of the rucksack is one thing and if that's what you want to do get to the top take a photo and go back then fine but like you said yours is is a whole activity in its own and it's almost two quite therapeutic things that you're mixing together of taking your time cooking and also adventuring and exploring and, and, and taking in these sites. And I can absolutely attest to, to, to you carrying an entire kitchen up to a, the top of a hill because I've seen it firsthand. And apart from having to just uh, pre-do a few flatbreads, which you also cooked when you were up there because you were you pre-prepared because you were cooking for about 20 people, uh, you cooked us a, a very nice, I think it was a vegetarian curry with flatbreads and like a tzatziki and, and a few other sides and bits and pieces. And it was like you wouldn't know it was being cooked on the top of a hill on some stoves by an individual that had carried it all up there. It, it really was amazing and it, it is completely inspiring. And I think people don't often think about the food aspect of it. And if you want to get outdoors and try something different, then there's hiking and walking. But there's also this other element that you can introduce to it as well. It's just merging the two, isn't it? I think, and again, it's elongating that, that activity and making more of a day from it. I think it's, again, we we've, we often sort of hear the, the picnic sort of uh, mentality in this country. And for me, I don't see it as too different. But mm. there are those, of course, that I think will, 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 I don't know, maybe roll their eyes at certain moments and just completely write it off. I understand for some that it's not about that aspect and things, and people are more, and again, I'm not putting down, again, the dehydrated, options out there too because without those some of these expeditions and things would not be possible and there's a, there's a part they play in those and even myself and i've done sort of multi-days out in sort of boffies in the west highlands and things up there or multi-day treks they play sort of a role as well in terms of maybe i have them as some lunches and maybe the dehydrated options to have a better meal on the evening that i maybe gathered the stuff for as i go but 
Some people are really, I guess, anal about the weight they carry and they want to have a certain kilogram and that's it, then fine. I mean, I'm probably not going to convince you in that phrase. <laughs> and again, it's each of their own. It's different bits. But there's times where I head up and I want a really light pack too and I want to just fly out the mountaintop and get that fitness fine. But other times I head out there to gather a sunset on the mountaintop and just purely to cook. So it's a, it's a different activity in itself. And I think if you look at it that way, rather than thinking, well, you're not going to do that and do John O'Groats to to land's end now you have all that weight well yes maybe not but it's a different activity in itself as you would do if you're going for a lightweight trail run or if you're going for a cycle on a, a different bike um yeah that sort of way but for me again that whole sensation of people gathering around that table that initial sort of story those initial vivid memories as a child now again that sensation of gathering around the camp stove sharing those stories over a meal perhaps on a wild camp or just a lovely sunset experience after a swim at the lakeside, on the top of a mountain. It just heightens and elevates an experience for me um, with someone that loves food as much as I now love the outdoors. You touched on it a few minutes ago, but the fell foodie social influence that you are today was not the original intention. That's not what you were going for. You, I think, like you said, you were. it was faceless and it was like a blog to begin with. How did that then gradually become something to which you wanted to attribute your face and name to? So, I, I, yeah, it was never never set up for that. I mean, at first, I think it was literally somewhere to put pictures of my dinner to not annoy Facebook friends. And I think it was actually a colleague of mine, at Gingerbread that you mentioned, he asked me, that said that, you know, why didn't you get Instagram? And I, and I never used it before. I never really had. I wasn't really used social media at the time. I only had a smartphone from the age of maybe 22. I didn't really, didn't really embrace that sort of side of things. And I thought, okay, I'll start this off. And again, a bit like I had in the past. I, mean, I only looked at this recently in this way. Um, quite recently, but I guess I chose that name and sort of pseudonym. Again, there's another mask to hide behind, like I had done, I suppose, with the mental health stuff in the past. I suppose I didn't. I felt a bit still vulnerable, I guess, to to the public. I shared, sort of, I guess, to people I knew what had gone on, but this was now something else I was doing. I was I was finding my feet. I was learning. Um, again, I was very green. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, and just learning, I suppose, about hiking, about camping, about cooking, about equipment. I was completely, you didn't know what I was doing. So at first it was anonymous, no intention of where it was going. But as time had gone on, I mentioned I was journaling quite a lot at the start of this journey, um, getting sober. And it naturally felt like a, um, the next level for this was to journal almost in like a public way online. So I was using it and writing quite long, raw and honest captions that were almost like they were to, to just to a diary, if you will, but. And people seem to identify with what I was doing, I guess, and getting out there and the reasons why I'd got in the outdoors. There's so many people that discovered it for the same sort of reasons in terms of for better mental health or for physical benefits and, and also that escapism aspect and just really leaving behind the stresses of, of normal life when you're out there in these environments that were really designed designed to be in. And it was about my second year sober, so it will be 2018, um, June, that I decided to share this whole story again on there, uh, but now publicly. So I shared exactly what I'd gone through, the battles I'd had with alcoholism, with depression, with suicidal contemplation, to 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 strangers in a way, really. I mean, a few people I'd met, but majority strangers. And this, once again, just like that first moment, the support I got back was was just humbling. Again, there were so many people who discovered it for similar reasons. And this began to lead to a few publications reaching out to do little articles and interviews I'd never done before, I think a podcast came about at the time to get in touch and some local news on, on television. 
And it's all just began to sort of begin to naturally snowball from that moment of me just literally sharing what I do, just almost a window into into what I actually how I live. I mean, even the, the cooking side. Some people often say, "Oh well, do you present in that way? You're just cooking for yourself at home." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, I do." Like it's just I just see those little bits and little heights like, are things that just elevate things for me. So mm. I, I don't want to shirk on them. I don't want to skimp on them. I've never been one to to shy away from. From good food, even when you're sort of trying to travel and things, and fast food things never really been my sort of stuff either. And it wasn't going to be this way when I got into the outdoors, but it's just again a completely organic journey, one I never really set out to do, and certainly never expected this to become a livelihood of where it's gone to this day. But again, just being raw and honest, sharing those battles I have and battles I still have, and it's not it's not a cure, this sort of thing. Um, it's very much I mean again through lockdown. I think I've had my struggles like anyone else has. I think it's shattering of routine and certainly lent on food again as a comfort angle um, which I think is, 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 is shown physically on me at that point but if that was to be my thing that fell back to get through an uncertain period then I'm okay with that I think that's understandable um, in a way so we all have our things but it's just been an honest account of one sort of Cumbrian man's battle I guess with his own vices and and discovering the outdoors and I guess a bit of an unusual angle with the cooking too. But yeah, it's always made raw and honest. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have platforms like this now ask me to uh, to share my story further. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask you for a, a, a couple of a couple more questions. But gosh, I just wanted to touch on what you just said there because it's uh, really, really important. And it's interesting that you say that it's still something that is still there because obviously mental health sometimes and when mental well-being is sometimes seen as a you are the are in a bad place or you're not it's actually more of a spectrum and you can float in between and you might have good mental health but your mental well-being is not good for 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 the time being or vice versa and anywhere in those sorts of four corridors so i think it's it's important to to highlight what you just said there and um and then how you still use the outdoors to as as kind of an out output for that um this is going to be an impossible question to ask, so I I know that going into it. But if I had to try and get you down to one thing that is kind of like your staple, you love to cook. It might be your favourite thing to eat, or just because of the process of cooking it. What would it be? <laughs> it always comes up this one, you know. It always comes up, but it's always one that I, I struggle with every time. Yeah. But I mean, I said in reality, as I usually say, the actual principle of cooking and the the method is the bit that for me is the true enjoyment. That sort of putting things together, they almost see how experimenting different flavours and merging them together. And especially when that's for other people and seeing how they enjoy food and enjoy things you've created, almost I guess that that, that love and time you've put into something, that, that's the bit that really sings to me. But of course, I think if I was really pushed, I think in certain dishes, I mean, I love sort of Greek cuisine, I love Italian cuisine, some sort of um, South Asian cuisines as well, but I think I'd go with something Greek probably, I think, out there. Maybe some cleftico lamb, maybe a nice meze dish out there. That's what, again, the sharing angle, the flatbreads and the dips, and that's what I really like. Just, But that, in this way, I think it's a very human element to it. Sometimes it's not about the actual ingredients or the plate on the table. It's the experience of food and how it plays that part, which for me, again, is why that combination of the outdoors, adventure and food works so well. Making me hungry again. <laughs> <laughs> so what if if you had to give a piece of advice to someone that might be listening to this and thinking oh I wouldn't 
wouldn't be against trying to go up the local hill or get into cooking outdoors. What's a piece of advice that you would offer them to, to kind of get that ball rolling? Uh, so there's somebody else, I guess. I mean, it's, it, it was very much your first sort of one. I mean, for me, the, one of the battles I had internally at the time was 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 a lot of insecurity. I guess I mean, I was I was carrying a lot of weight again, or maybe a bit like now. Where I think it's probably and the story sometimes sometimes um, recycles itself. But it's that feeling of how other people perceived you. I struggled with quite a bit, and then must be worried again. I was a lot of weight on me. I was going to run and things. It were like well. People maybe look at you and thinking, well, what's he doing out there? But it quickly began to dawn on me in that switch of sort of intention. Um, that no matter sort of how how far I was going or how slow or how fast I was doing something, it was a lot more than the man sat at home on the sofa. So that sort of point for me was the fact that no matter what sort of little steps you're doing, those little steps add up. So I think it was just beginning the first time. I mean, you don't have to go and get forced into hell valley in your second week of hiking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's lots and more than that, but it's the little steps. And again, with the running side, especially, I mean, it was, it was very much 1K at first into two, into five, to then hitting that marathon 11 months on. It, it was all building up to that moment, but I think it's not rushing into things too much, but allowing the progression. And feeling proud for, for the little positive steps you're making, I think is, is, is where I'd go with that sort of thing. Um, and I know it's a journey that I'm, going on again myself now but it doesn't feel like stage one because I've obviously got experience I know the journey of where I've been in the past um but yeah it's just putting that interaction again but always more than the man at home on the sofa exactly so what's next for fell foodie what adventures have you got planned so for me well again it's all it's 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 I take a lot of life as it comes you might have gathered that from this sort of thing William a lot of the the journey in itself felt quite out of my hands at times. Although I was making the positive steps forward and making the actions, there was a lot of a lot of almost trust in, in sort of things too. And I suppose for now, I mean, again, I was I've now gone freelance with this from, from January sort of twenty 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 two, and we're coming into nearly a full year of that now, and for some fantastic opportunities to basically talk uh, all across the country and do various bits and cooking for uh, some people like yourself and uh, some group sessions out there and, and sharing really my my passion for food, it's almost like two separate angles, really, I guess. The passion for that, looking at food in a different way in the outdoors and how we sustain ourselves on adventure. But also, again, that that battle internally and how you can make that change in your life and how therapeutic the outdoors can be. So heading forward, I don't know, I guess it'll be sharing that further. I mean, I always say that if my story can help one person, it's worthwhile sharing. Um, so I'd like to continue to do that. Um, but likewise, to continuing to cook various nice meals on different mountains across the country and perhaps further afield. But yeah, and I've had some great moments recently, I guess, from from being at some fantastic festivals. I mean, I've been at the Expo last year to, to being later on asked to be ambassadors for various large brands to, to then even getting the chance to go on BBC and cook for Mary Berry. I mean, it's been a completely <laughs> a whirlwind journey that I would never have expected from those first moments of being completely rock bottom. What did you cook her? What did you bake her? Or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> it was well. Yeah, but they, they first called me up and I said, you know, I'm not baking her a cake. There's no chance I am baking Mary Berry a cake. Um, and stupidly, about two weeks before the filming day, I decided to have a go-ahead cake and put it on my Instagram. And the producer saw that and said, we'd like that, please. So <laughs> two weeks later, there I was with uh, the queen of, queen of baking, trying to make her a cake on the hillside on a camping stove and a... Uh, 
Yeah, that was a stress moment. Let's put it that way. But it's, <laughs> it's quite, quite It's going to work as well. But, but frankly, it all came out, and it was a it was a wonderful thing to be able to do and be able to say you've done. And oh, by yeah. all accounts, it's the first time she's been beta cake in the outdoors before. So it was a nice like lemon lemon and blueberry drizzle cake I did on a little sort of camp stove oven contraption I've got on the top and uh, and I made a little sort of pan-seared sea bass dish um, to go before that with like a lemon vinaigrette and some pancetta and broad beans so again it was a wonderful day I want to live along the memory it was a fantastic um, piece that got broadcast in the end as well but yeah it's yeah, a real well, moment but... yeah I can imagine what an amazing experience <laughs> <laughs> and before I ask you your last question, where can people go to see all of these images of the amazing food you cook and all of your experiences and anything else about the Fell Foodie? Thank you, Joe. It's, uh, yeah, so I'm on all the social platforms. I mean, I've even tried my hand on the newer ones recently, but you'll find me just at Fell Foodie. No spaces on there at all. Fell Foodie with an IE. And uh, otherwise on my website, www.fellfoodie.co.uk. And I appreciate, you know, any any comments I always get on various bits. I always reach out back to people that respond to me. Um, again, I'm not a medical professional, but I'm always willing to share my lived experiences too with people perhaps going through similar struggles. But, yeah, you'll see adventures, meals, and um, some ramblings of my uh, of my mind on there if you, if, you, if you follow along. But otherwise, hopefully I'll see you again at all of the expos too in, a, in time to come. The National Outdoor Expo, yeah, we look forward to that. And, um, yeah, on the topic of advice and, and speaking to people, a, a piece of advice that you would want to give to someone that is going to be a guest on this podcast can be any sort piece of, of advice. advice. Oh, that's probably the toughest one you've asked, Tom, I think, today. It's, um, yeah. I, I think what I'd say, I think from a lot of things that I, I've gone through, maybe it's, you always look again at the, the grander picture of things, I think, and, and the, the big aim, perhaps it's climbing that, that huge mountain or reaching that, that finish line somewhere or achieving a certain uh, goal of yours. But I think one thing I've maybe learned through this and, and the advice I'd maybe give to somebody else is, is taking a step back from that sometimes and just really looking at the smaller picture. So I think it's it's more about enjoying the things you've got close to hand, the things that you're lucky to have and the things that maybe you're more privileged to have in areas with fraud, I mean, not just even in this country, but, but globally. And for me, there's a lot of things we look past again, like those early days of being snow blind to the mountains on my doorstep, of not taking them in to really what what they could offer for me. It's it's looking at that smaller picture. So I think it's appreciating the smaller things in life because I think those those really are the big things that that mean the most. Harrison, that's a fantastic piece of advice and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you. So there we have it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Outside and Active podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Harrison and could take some inspiration from his story. We're always keen to have some feedback and to have a conversation with our listeners. So if you have something you want to say or someone you'd love to hear on the podcast, please reach out to us by emailing outsideandactive at raccoonmediagroup.com. That email will be in the description and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another inspiring guest with an interesting story. But until next time, enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy the outdoors.